Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You're done with your Oreo? Yeah, <laughs> done with my Oreo. Okay, good. Um, Do we really know what happened? The brother did. The brother, that's what I thought too. I mean, that seems like kind of obvious. Hey, do you want to talk about death? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm murdery, 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 Sorry. with us. Sorry, we're a little late. A little late. So first, welcome to Mystery Murdery Thingy. I'm Chloe. I'm Mario. Welcome to Friday. Friday. Jesus Friday, Christ. Friday. That's where we're at right now. Right. Um, so <laughs> let's just, just real quick, right at the beginning. Just some tech difficulties. And I don't want to, I don't need to get into the whole thing, but essentially what happened was we recorded Tuesday night, like we usually do. We get we were gonna get the pot out to y'all twelve oh one on Wednesday, which I always like to do. Right at twelve on Wednesday. And well, ideal I got home. Is, ideal is recording on, on Sunday. Right, 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 right. We've been but trying to record on Sunday. Sometimes but, it doesn't happen. Right, right. So we, but anyway, we were still being responsible. Okay. We we did it Tuesday yeah, night. <clears throat> I get home, I'm gonna upload it to to put it in GarageBand and whatever, and it's just doesn't play. Yeah, and then it, it, and then it. I put it on my computer, and it won't open. And then I'm like, "Why is this file only nine megabytes?" Oh, oh it's <laughs> not there. It was completely corrupted. And anyway, now I've told you the whole story. So I was very, very frustrated after like an hour. <laughs> I'd spent yeah about an hour trying to make it work, and it just was not there. So hey, here we are. Round what two. we what we said then will remain a mystery. Ooh. There's a mystery. That's a good way to put it's it. Another mystery. A, the lost tapes. There were, yes. The, the lost the, tapes. The, lo, the lost files of mystery murdery thingy. Um, so right. we're, we're doing it again. Take what two. Are we, what are we talking about this week, Mario we, Silva? We are, well, I'm talking about uh, part two of the Antikythera mechanism. Yes. Yes. There's so much to it. Don't you love ancient computers? And I'm talking about what I'm going to talk about. You'll find out. <laughs> right. I already know because I heard the whole thing before. Okay, anyway. No, you didn't. No. Let's just jump right into it. Okay, so part two, Antikythera mechanism. Just going to run uh, right back in here with a meanwhile. Meanwhile? You should probably listen to the last episode if, if yeah, you Yeah, go uh... back, take a little, do a little <laughs> rewind. Right. We're Stop. talking about a, a basically rewind. an ancient computer. Exactly. So, um, just kind of, yeah, just kind of going to jump back right, right back into it. So, meanwhile, in London in 1983, which is uh, the same year that Derek Price died, who, if you'll recall, is the one who did a lot of the, you know, kind of early um, investigation into the right. device starting in the late 50s until his death. In 1983. One of the many people who dedicated his life. Right? Exactly, exactly. Kind of the, the pioneer of that. So in London in 1983, a Lebanese man walks into the Science Museum on Exhibition Road. And he's got this little weird thing with him. And he says, hey, I have an ancient geared mechanism that I bought in a market in Beirut, Lebanon. 
several weeks ago. Do you want to see it? I just found it. <laughs> I just, it, and it appeared to me. And the really weird thing about this. <laughs> Y'all want to see it? Right. <laughs> is that it actually ended up being real and right. like genuine and being identified as the second oldest geared mechanism ever discovered behind, of behind. course, the Antikythera mechanism. Yeah. Um, it really sparked the interest of the curator, Michael Wright. And he started to get really into these like ancient machines. Um, and what Wright eventually did was made a reconstruction of the little geared mechanism. It was like a sundial, um, actually a, a lot simpler than the Antikythera mechanism, weirdly, and dated it to about the 6th century CE. So about 700 years or so after the Antikythera mechanism was, was uh, created. And this, you know, kind of investigation um, and his, uh, you know, kind of getting really, really into these things naturally led him to the Antikythera mechanism. So he he kind of turned his studies to that and just like Price, you know, got really, really into it. And he actually um, went back and looked at all of the stuff that Price had did before, the reconstruction that he did, all of his theories about how it worked and all that, and found some errors. Okay. Okay. So kind of a reevaluation now of what the Antikythera mechanism, exactly how it did work. And this is the 80s now? Right, right, okay. right. This is starting in like 1983, mid-80s or so. And Wright um, really approached the, the project as an engineering task. So, you know, he really wanted to make like a working model of the Antikythera mechanism that worked in the way that it worked then, right? Um, which is, it's really hard to say. I mean, that's kind of one of the central mysteries here, right? What exactly did this thing look like and what exactly did it do? And um, Michael Wright was kind of well-positioned to look into this because he had a really deep well of knowledge about um, gear train design and especially about timepieces. This guy was, okay. like, weirdly obsessed with clocks. Oh, so he wasn't, like, an engineer or something? No, he was an oh, engineer. He, was. he just, he had a hobby, like, interest in clocks as well. It's kind of Cool. His whole house was filled with like cuckoo clocks that would oh, like. So he, oh, so he wasn't like having like walk around with, like Gucci watches and shit. No, <laughs> no, he. It was it was more like you know like your your weird grandma who's like a cat lady and's got a bunch of clocks in their house, um, but he was you know a curator of a museum with a bunch of clocks in his house. So um, he also realized you know right realized that in order to really understand this machine that. Um, a new set of x-rays was going to need to be done. So in 1990, he um, works actually with a collaborator, which is weird for Wright. He's, he's kind of a misanthrope, kind of a, you know, a homebody. He, he, he doesn't work well with others, okay? So I was going to say like you. But, but you do work well with others. You're just a homebody. I'm a homebody. That's what not, I meant. Not when you said homebody, I was like, oh. <laughs> like me. Like both of us. Right. Um, so unfortunately, Michael Wright, he probably <laughs> should have just stuck with the working alone in this instance. Because the guy he picked to work with, Alan Bromley, ended up being kind of a dick. Yikes. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't want to speak ill of the dead. We'll get to that. But. Yeah, I think he, you can it wasn't speak great. however you want of the dead because they're dead. That's true. They don't know, right? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe they do know. Ooh, 
ghosty. Um, so maybe Alan Bromley's ghost is looking down with displeasure on me at this very moment. Yeah, on us specifically. Right. Sure. So, uh, Alan, if you're listening, I'm just going to tell you a few facts about you already know about yourself. He was a lecturer in computer science, a really, really super smart guy. Um, and he, you know, and, and, and right, did these x-rays together, right? 1990, the Wright thought they were doing it together, but once the x-rays were actually done, Wright said, mm, yeah, um, or Bromley, should, sorry, said, yeah, I don't think you're going to get that information, Michael Wright. Uh, you're not going to actually get access to the x-rays because I'm going to be the one who's going to make the big discovery. So it turned into a pissing contest, yeah. basically. And Alan Bromley had the the goods, right? I want to do wasn't, it. He wasn't giving them away. So... You know, this whole thing, you know, that wanting to be the one to make the big discovery, it's kind of a recurrent theme in this uh, investigation. And and you can see me rolling my eyes. Y'all can't see me rolling my eyes. (laughs) Chloe can see me rolling my eyes here. (laughs) So almost 10 years later, so now we're about the year 2000. The year 2000. I remember those spots on Conan when he used to talk about the year 2000, like it was some weird date in the future. My God, that was that's 20, how I feel about, 20 years ago almost. That's how I feel about 2020. Like 2020 right. is like so future. Oh, it's so crazy. God, I remember that. He kept doing that bit after the year 2002, <laughs> which I thought was kind of funny. But anyway, <laughs> getting off on a tangent. So anyway, we're, we're the year 2000 and Michael Wright's obsession with the mechanism. You know, it's, it's not only this bad experience with Alan Bromley, but also may have contributed to his divorce. Oh, and, damn. And... Um, you know, the, the the sort of tragedy continues when Alan Bromley uh, ends up on his deathbed of cancer he in like Sydney, Australia. He, like, loved the mechanism more than he loved his wife. Uh, that's what it uh, may have been. Yes, allegedly, yeah. perhaps. Yikes. Um Yikes. So, <laughs> Alan Bromley, on his deathbed, finally gives Michael Wright much of the X-ray data that he had denied him previously. And after all of this, right, after all this heartache, all this suffering, um, Michael Wright was especially dismayed to know that new x-rays were right. about to be done. So his x-rays are like old and useless and... Obsolete. He'd been fighting for them for so long and now his like... His thunder had been stolen. <sighs> yes. So um, poor Michael Wright. Um, and, of course, the scanning technology, by the time, you know, we're getting to this point a few years later, has greatly improved um, since Wright's x-rays were done. So uh, they, they truly were obsolete. Um, so with these new x-rays, though, they could see inside of the mangled pieces of the antique theorem mechanism to see really how it was constructed and give us a pretty good idea of probably so, how it worked. So, okay. So before, could they see layers? They could see them, but it, it they couldn't tease them apart, right? Um, the, with this new technology, which was called uh, computer tomography 3D X-ray scanning. Bless you. You're welcome. <laughs> so what with that technology, you know, um, really allowed them to do was, was to tease apart the different layers. Okay. It allowed them to create a true 3D image of what was going on. Okay. Right? So, um, and this technology, just so you understand, was was actually not developed for this purpose at all. It was actually developed for better aviation safety testing. 
Um, but it was tweaked by the researchers to use it to explore the mechanism. And when the researchers called the company that then makes these x-ray machines to do this, they were kind of hesitant. They didn't know if the x-ray people were going to be into it. You know, this is not their sort of wheelhouse, right? They were totally up for it. Uh. <laughs> they were They were super into it. They were like, Wait, you have what? <laughs> and they made an x-ray machine like specifically for um, for investigating the antikythera mechanism. Oh, wow. And, and not only do they do that, but because the antikythera mechanism is so fragile and cannot be moved, um, you know, more than within the museum it's, it's housed in, they actually took the whole huge x-ray machine to Athens and set it up there. Okay, how huge is huge? Uh, the, like um, the size of this room. Wow. Which, if you're not here in this room, uh, is what, uh, 10 by 12? Sure. About 10 by 12. So pretty fucking big, I would say, to use a technical term. <laughs> and um, <laughs> Yes, the, the scientific term. Right, right, to use my scientific terms. <laughs> uh, so the first pictures were, according to one researcher, quote, so much better than we dared to hope. Wow. And that they, quote, took your breath away. So I know it's hard to, uh, okay, this x-ray as opposed to that x-ray, but I think that gives you a little bit of an idea of why this was different this time. Yeah. Um, the people who were in the know were super impressed. Yeah. And they, this was really a watershed moment uh, for them. And the more thorough imaging of the antikythera mechanism really revealed that Wright and Price were essentially correct in their theories about how the mechanism worked. Uh, for example, Price had predicted that um, that one of the gears was based on a 235 lunar month cycle. So he predicted that it would have 235 gears, right, the little triangles, oh my God. to account for that. And there is an inscription on that gear that literally reads 235 divisions on the spiral. So we know that he was exactly correct. And again, if you're wondering, like, well, why didn't you just count up the gears? A lot of them are broken and missing. Okay. So there's guesswork that has to be done as well and extrapolation. And um, in addition to that, Wright had predicted that there would be a little re revolving sphere representing, you know, the sun or the moon. And another description read, quote, on the extremity of the pointer stands a little golden sphere. Close quote. So would that be the sun? That would be the sun, exactly. So, you know, these things were, were actually represented graphically. So with, it's a with calendar among other things? Yes, it's it's sort of a predictive calendar, you could okay. say. It shows you when uh, eclipses are coming up. Um, you know, the movements of celestial bodies across the sky, including nonlinear movements. Um, so it, it was quite sophisticated. So yes, it was a calendar, but also, you know, it, it had a lot of depth to it as well. And further analysis of those better x-rays revealed that there was actually an explanatory text, and this is just nuts to me, of more than 3,500 words uh, serving as a detailed catalog and explanation of the Antikythera mechanism. So it had a how-to? It sort of had a how-to, yeah. It was like, this was here, and, you know, it did this, and this was here, and it did this. Why can't, like, 
all ancient discoveries have a little like blurb that says, here's right? what this is and why. In, in <laughs> and perfectly <how>. etched <laughs> little letters that you can actually read there even would after be they've so been many crushed for 2,000 years. Questions out there. <laughs> there would be. I mean, I, I wish the library at Alexandria hadn't burned down. You know, like that would have been five times. That would have been nice. Yeah, like five times and to the ground, many, you know, a few times. So, um, if you recall, we're, we're gonna jump back in, uh, to the story of our friend Xenophon Musas. Um, I don't recall. Okay, the I'm last time, honest, sure, man. sure, sure. <laughs> the last time we met Xenophon, he was a little boy, <clears throat> just a little tiny boy, looking oh, he... through the wind, the glass at the uh, antique there mechanism and, and just fascinated this by it. This was the beginning of his movie, right. I right, remember, because exactly. that's why I pictured it. Right, 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 <laughs> exactly, exactly. And uh, in the interim, you know, he grew up to be um, one of the, you know, Antikythera mechanism researchers. And he told the New Yorker that uh, in reference to the explanatory text, it was as if, quote, we had discovered the user's manual right inside the machine. Right, Close right. That's so exactly nuts. what it is. <laughs> exactly, that's exactly what it is. So um, Musas and other researchers also realized that the writing preserved in the metal and in etching represented an almost unique record of ancient astronomical writing, almost all of which is not extant. So what does that mean? N- not present anymore. It was lost long oh, ago. Oh, wow. So it, it's, it's interesting because it, not only because it's a how-to manual for the Antikythera mechanism and this whole notion of an ancient computer and geared mechanism and all of that, but also it furthers our understanding of what the ancients knew and uh, understood about how astronomy worked. So it's, it's, it's even, you know, it's kind of like a, a double miracle. So is it more than we thought? I don't like know if it's necessarily more? more than we thought. Mm, no, not necessarily, but it, I think it, it just... And I don't really know enough to say for sure, but I, I think it's more that it just kind of like enriches our understanding okay. and like confirms things that maybe we had suspected before. Okay. Um, but it's just crazy that we actually have this, you know, after all these years. Um, and Xenophon Musas also remembers that this period, you know, after the x-rays were taken was an intense period of examination and interpretation um, leading up to about 2006 when they were actually able to make some you know, more definitive statements about what was revealed in those x-rays. And he actually remembers this as, quote, the most interesting time in my life, close quote. So, Mm. yeah, that would be part of the movie, too. You know, uh, that would probably be, um, what what do you call it, a... um, when you got like all the different times, you're, you're a going montage. Through. It would be a montage. Yes, exactly. There'd be a montage sequence. They're looking at the plates or the computer screens and or his, whatever. He's like and narrating you're... in the back, like this was the most interesting time of my life. Exactly, um, and that he really felt like it connected him with like his ancient astronomical colleagues. You know, as he put it, in a a very moving way to him. You know, this kind of like visceral, tactile connection to these people that lived, you know, 2,500 years ago. Uh, but in the end, they were all interested in the same thing, right? Exactly, because like, people don't change. It, yeah. Yeah, exactly. People now are the same as they were to well before 2,000 years ago. So um, let's kind of pause at this point, take stock of what we know and what is still a mystery, okay? So what we do know is that this thing, the Antikythera mechanism, was a geared machine of some great complexity. Um, it was 
almost certainly used to display the movement of the sun and the moon, and also probably the planets as well. Um, the four or five, I forget, that they um, knew about at that time. One of the big mysteries, though, is why. You know, why did they make this thing? Um, because it wasn't really necessary to to do the calculations that, you know, to do these extrapolations. They could just kind of do it through abstract calculation instead of, like, geared mechanisms. So in that way, <coughs> it was not easier? Like, it wasn't a type of, like, innovative thing that made these calculations quicker and easier, like a calculator? Sort of, but it wasn't widely available enough to have that much of an impact. I mean, this thing was an oddity. It probably wasn't unique. There were almost certainly more than one, but, you know, it wasn't like an abacus, you know, okay, or okay. an astrolabe, you know, where, you know, they were just everywhere. Um, it was too hard to make and too complex to design for it to be really practical in terms of like really furthering like the mainstream understanding of how these things work. Um, so yes and no. Um, but it, it really just doesn't appear that it was used that way, even if it was possible to, because it wasn't mass produced, like I said, like the astrolabe. So we, we don't really have, you know, examples of uh, a lot of people using it to, mm -hmm. to make predictions. Um, you know, it, it, it just kind of seems like it was more of a fascination, a, a, even a toy in a way. I mean, people feel strongly, I think, one way or the other about calling it that and, and whether that kind of demeans it in a way. But I, I, I guess I'm just trying to figure out how do they think about it, you know, not putting our kind of stamp on it or or understanding, but what was their understanding of it from their perspective, which is really hard to say. What if it was more of a learning tool than anything? It could have been, you know, it could have been because there, there is a, a, there are theories that it came out of one of the kind of great, you know, centers of learning in, in the ancient world. So well, you said it maybe. was found on a ship full of treasure, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we're not sure where that ship was going or whose ship it was necessarily. But, you know, I, I, I think that it, it really maybe was something a little more like magical or spiritual to, to oh, the Greeks that, okay. you know, the, the notion that one could hold the motions of the heavens in your hands, that, that you could actually turn a, a, a crank, right. And see information that then you also saw played out in the sky meant that in some ways you uh, controlled it. You know, so it could have also been like a religious symbol, maybe. I think so. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure that there's necessarily support for that in the record, but I don't know that there would be. What if like only like monks and stuff had it, and they were like, "Look, friends, here's what <laughs> our mechanism is saying about the skies today." Well, yeah. I mean, this thing would have been the ultimate status symbol. The the person or or people who owned it. Um, I mean, it, it would have been almost inconceivable to, to most people. I mean, it would be almost inconceivable to most people today that someone would have had that 2,500 years ago. Imagine yeah, if you were like, a person 2,500 years ago. You know, I can't imagine. <laughs> neither can I. And, and that's why, that's why I think this question, it, it, it will almost all, all, it, uh, almost certainly will always remain a mystery it's because just, it's really not possible for us to cast our mind back or, or understand the ancient culture well enough 
to really understand why they would have made this thing. It's interesting that, like, we have this little, like, user manual on it, but we don't... There's still so many questions, like, surrounding it. Right, because the user manual says absolutely nothing about why it was made. It it, it really doesn't even say the purpose for which it was made. It just says, you know, this thing is here and this is what it does. Okay. But only sort of self-referentially. Okay. So it, it, it is sort of a user's manual, but also it's really not a user's it manual. Would be, it would be read in assumption that the person reading it already knew the answers that we're looking for. Exactly, exactly. It's not telling you how it works, really. Or, like, how to fix it, certainly. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) My God. Um, Yeah, I can't can't imagine if you were the owner of it and you had no idea and then it stopped working. (laughs) Like, like a computer, right? Oh, God. (laughs) Like a fucking computer um so nightmare anyway yeah but actual nightmare i I think it's it's even though we'll never really know it's it's pretty cool to think about you know this stuff and and what it kind of could have meant in in that ancient context but essentially we know that it was an ancient analog computer and i'll I'll unpack that uh term a little bit analog computer so what an analog computer is is a, a model of a physical phenomena that essentially does the same thing, but in a much more limited way, okay? So it can actually be a lot more powerful at certain limited tasks than a digital computer, which is, of course, a a multi-purpose computer. An analog computer can do one thing, so it's pretty limited, but it can do that one thing really well, exactly. So the, the Antikythera mechanism could rightly be called an analog computer because it took simple inputs, right, the date that you would put in, and gave out complex outputs through a series of calculations. And in this case, the mechanism uh, did those calculations with the ratios of the gears. So essentially, one gear in a drivetrain would turn at a certain rate which would cause another gear to turn at a certain rate. And the ratio between those rates is actually a a mathematical calculation itself, right? Um, Because you're kind of turning one number into another number. The numbers being the number of gears on the number of of little, you know, whatever, carrots or teeth. That's the word I'm looking carrot? for. Teeth. I don't know. Teeth. Carrots. On a, well, <laughs> carrot, like in, like on the, you know, on oh. the keyboard carrot, oh. not like a carrot you eat. Carrot. Anyway, um, the miniaturization <laughs> and complexity of the gears and the drivetrains is really striking. I mean, this is one of the, the weirdest things about this, right, for an ancient machine. We did not, before this was discovered, think that it was possible to create something of this um, precision in the ancient world. We thought that these kind of things really weren't, um, able to exist until about the 14th century. So what? It's prochronistic. Prochronistic. <laughs> prochronistic. Yes, that's that's our our word for the two weeks is prochronistic. <laughs> and it did have about 30 to f- maybe as many as 50 or more precision gears within it. Um, and of course, we're we're just not sure because there are so many pieces of it that are missing. Right. And this complexity is even more impressive considering that it was. P- almost certainly all done by hand tools. They didn't have machines that could do these things back then, right? They had to do all of this by hand. So it's just the the craftsmanship 
with which this thing was made is a, is a wonder in and of itself, and kind of a mystery in and of itself. So it makes sense that I guess it wouldn't be mass produced. Exactly, it, it wouldn't have been able to be mass produced, um, but it it also probably would have taken a team of artisans to do it, which is part of why people think there was more than one, um, because it just seems odd or kind of inconceivable that they would have gone to all that trouble just to make one. So um, the handmade gears were put together in what's called an uh, epicyclic gearing system. And that type of system was not known to exist until about 1,500 years after the Antikythera mechanism was sunk. So in the way in which it was put together, you know, on a larger scale, as well as how it was constructed on a small scale, both of those would appear to be prochronistic. Um, so it's prochronistic on more than one level. So what's anachronistic? That is, um, is simply the inverse, something that's out of time but is old-timey, right? So like um, uh, the Amish. The Amish are anachronistic, right? That's funny. Yeah, so um, <laughs> that's, that's what that word means. Well, I mean, I'm just bringing it up because it means I've been using that word wrong. Me too, me too. <laughs> and I don't know, maybe it can mean both. I'm not really sure. But anyway, um, the Antikythera mechanism also seems to have had a, this is really cool to me, a little sphere painted half white and half black. So it would actually show graphically the phases of the moon. Ooh. Yeah. And that's part of why I think this was such a, maybe a spiritual thing to them because you see, okay, I see here it's half and half. Okay. So I'm going to wait. I'm going to stay up late tonight. I'm going to see, is it really half and half? And then you see like, oh, it really is. Or it's like really full, or it's really you know having an eclipse right now. That makes now. sense. You know, so it's it's just it must have been so cool to those people to be able to do it. I just I almost wish I could have lived in that time and be that person. You know what I mean? But also not because I like having um you know like so you love your iPhone, and don't you? iPhones and all the other <laughs> things we get to have nowadays. So that's glasses. pretty cool. Ripe glasses, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, this was before glasses, by the way. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Um, the other cool thing about it was that the, it, it also showed the, um, dates of ancient athletic competitions, which, oh. which is kind of cool. Um, so I read that That's too. Weird. Yeah. Okay. That's so, kind of random. Maybe they were more, maybe it was a bigger deal then. I think they were a pretty big deal then. That was, that was kind of minor, more than I had thought before, for like sure. Like theater. Remember when theater was a big deal? <laughs> this was also that time. <sighs> so we we do know quite a bit, right, as we've been talking about uh, about the Antikythera mechanism. But there are also a lot of things that remain mysterious. So let's kind of then uh, run through The questions. That. Right, the remaining mysteries, the questions. Was this shipwreck of a Greek ship engaged in commerce or a Roman ship that had been plundered and was heading back to Rome with the plunder? We don't know. Um, why exactly did the shipwreck occur? Of course, we'll never really know that, but a lot of people have speculated that the amount of cargo, you know, just the sheer weight so and much. heft of the yeah, treasure yeah. Was, was too much, and that contributed to the, um, to the sinking. We also don't really know whether the planets were represented. That remains kind of an active debate, but it, it appears very, very possible, even probable, um, and it was definitely within the grasp of the makers to do that. And while those specific gears are not present, 
um, we know that there are gears that, that are not missing. pressing. Yeah. We know there are missing gears. And and presumably they would be among those. And there's also a large gear that seems to be missing that uh, w- would probably be tied to, to one or two of the planet's uh, cycles. And um, there also seems to be references to a planetary indicator um, in the inscriptions. The this is really cool too. I think um, the planetary display may have actually represented the planets with various like metals and minerals. So like gold for the sun, lapis lazuli for Earth, the red onyx for Mars. Oh wow! So that seems pretty cool so it was too. Like colorful, yeah. Like, c- could have been right, 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 right. Um, I like to think that it was. And I think the biggest mystery about this thing, other than its very existence, is who exactly made it? You know, right. when did they make it? Where did they make it? You know, how did this thing come about? Um, Whose idea was this? Yeah, like, who who could have come up with this thing? Um, so, you know, the, w- one idea is that it was this guy named Hipparchus, um, who's known as one of the great astronomers of ancient uh, Greece. Um, he's also thought to have been the one who invented trigonometry. So... You know, clearly a, a very skilled mathematician would have mm. probably had the, the technical know-how, you know, to calculate out the ratios and things of that nature. Yeah, ruined my uh, junior year of high school, <laughs> didn't he? Right. Yeah. What a dick. <laughs> um, the uh, device also may have been tied to Archimedes of Syracuse. And and this is one probably the one that has the most backing to it, the, the, at least as far as I could tell. So the, the device may have been um, referenced, actually, or something at least very much like it, in a text that's ascribed to Cicero. Um, and Cicero describes this thing that sounds a whole hell of a lot like the Antikythera mechanism and ties it to Archimedes. Oh, um, okay. In his writings? In, in, in that writing, yes, exactly. And Archimedes is also... Uh, said to have been, uh, to have written, excuse me, a now lost manuscript called On Sphere Making, detailing the making of complex geared devices. So oh, we wow. know he was into stuff like this. Um, you know, this very much would have been within his wheelhouse. They have a lost, what if it was, what if it was found? And it could be, I mean, that's not unprecedented. I don't what know. If we if found it. That would be cool. Let's go look in the ba- in the let's, in the attic. Let's look in yeah, the attic. in the basement too. <laughs> um, yeah, let's let, let's go uh, dig up some ground and see what we find. Um, he certainly, though, Archimedes, you know, would would definitely have been capable of this. Um, he's known for inventing the first odometer uh, for measuring distances. Okay. So it it, it looked kind of like a push cart. And used gearing to accurately... That's so cute. ...you know, calculate out a mile or whatever. So it's, it was pretty cool, yeah. And this actually allowed the Romans to um, create some of their um, great roads, including the Via Appia, which is, the, of course, the most famous one. Um, however, you know, there are some signs that it may not have been connected to Syracuse. So maybe it wasn't Archimedes directly... Um, it could possibly, though, excuse me, have been connected to an academy, and this is what, what I was kind of referencing earlier, founded by this guy named Posidonius. And Posidonius, um, he 
was, you know, a, a great astronomer, a great um, mechanical engineer. Um, he was connected to Rhodes, and um, it does seem that he would have been capable of doing something like this, perhaps, um, of the candidates, you know, who would have been back then. And furthermore, the theory for the motion of the moon used by the mechanism's constructor matches exactly uh, Hipparchus's theory. So that, that actually oh, um, okay. gives more so credence to Hipparchus. Okay. There's some, there's some countervailing uh, indications, you know, about who made it. But um, it's pretty neat. I won't, I won't get into the whole thing because it's kind of complicated. But um, the Antikythera mechanism essentially probably took into account the variable speed of the moon as it went around the Earth. And oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah, I know. Neither did I. <laughs> but the the whoever made the device did even twenty five hundred years ago, and um, this matches up uh, really well with Hipparchus's uh, theories. So that that kind of gives credence to to him. So you know the the full story of the Antikythera mechanism. We'll never really know, um, but I think it's super fascinating. And, what a weird little object. Yeah, and it just points to this whole tradition of advanced ancient mechanical engineering that, like, we just don't don't know about, right? <laughs> and, like, there's obviously a lot more to find out, so that's pretty exciting. And the last thing I just wanted to end on, um, look it up. Look up the picture. Uh, Andy Carroll, a hobbyist, in 2010, built a fully functioning Lego version. Uh, pretty cool. Uh Pretty cool for a nerd like me. For a nerd like me. <laughs> right. That's a great a, musical. A nerd like me. I don't know. I'm making that it sounds up. Like, that's what yeah, I'm saying. It sounds yeah, like a musical. exactly. It does. I'm going to be in a musical. Yay! Just got doing theater again after a year. God bless. I know. It's going to be blessing. good. If you're If you're in the Bloomington normal area, look at uh, communityplayers.org for details. Pushing the show. That's what they told me to do. So that's what I'm doing. So many high fives. And then I'm gonna put the um and then I'm gonna put the pod into the program in my bio. So <gasps> cross tabs. That's right. Okay. So many high fives. Okay, now you go, because I actually it's have, my turn. I have to get to that rehearsal. So. We do. Yeah, okay, go. Um so I wanted to talk about pseudoscience and forensic and stuff like that for uh-huh. a, like like a while. Um, so let's just, let's just get into it. I'm talking about some cold cases and some pseudoscience, junk science, and cold cases that have, are cold because of it. Right. And this- Don't watch Forensic Files. Don't watch Forensic Files. Don't, or if you do, don't believe it. Just take it with a grain of salt. And it's sad, and it's, I think a lot of people aren't aware of how rough forensic science really is. Right. And there are two- really important questions that should be considered when you're looking at forensic science and how it interacts with criminal criminal law. So is it founded on reliable scientific methodology? Can you accurately analyze the evidence and can you actually report findings? That's the big thing here. If you have multiple people doing the same process, you should be able to have the same exact results. Right. It shouldn't be interpretive or anything like that. Um, that begs the question, like, how much do the analysts rely on human interpretation? The the more that humans are involved and the more that we have to look at it ourselves, the less accurate that it ends up being. It can be tainted by error and there's there's bias. Um, there's the absence of of sound 
like actual like actual procedures. Um, you can do the drugs you're supposed to test. That came up. I don't know if you know Com- Kamala Harris recently announced you know that she was running for president. There was a controversy when she was the attorney general of California where... Yeah, there was a lot of controversies uh, surrounding uh, Kamala Harris. But uh, that's another conversation for another day. (laughs) Uh, So anyway, um, there was a a forensic tester that was doing exactly what I just said. And um, all of her cases had to be reviewed. Now, I heard Kamala Harris talking about this. What she says, um, just to address this like one particular one... The um, forensic testing lab was run by the police, not by the attorney general's exactly. office. That's so she didn't big, have direct oversight. Big thing. That's now, a big problem. Of course, her attorneys did rely on the evidence, and should they have known that this taint was there, perhaps. But she didn't have direct oversight, um, and she actually made the decision to automatically review and dismiss those cases, which she didn't right. have to do. She wasn't obliged to do that. So. Yes, that particularly controversy sounds bad for her, but I, I actually feel like she answered it pretty well. Mm-hmm. Anyway, That's not to, you know, get off on too political a sidetrack, but <laughs> it's sort of a political topic. Uh, okay, so I'm going to talk about uh, hair. I'm going to start with hair analysis, and then I'll talk about a case that, that goes with hair, hair analysis. So the problem with hair analysis is um, the human interpretation and, and the microscopic analysis. So in 2009, the National Academy of Sciences published a report called Strengthening Forensic Science in the United States, a pa- a United States, a path forward. Mm-hmm. Um, I could have read it, but I didn't. Uh, it's long. Long, uh, 60 Boring. bucks, not what I wanted to pay. And I actually found a lot of great sources that um, gave me a great summary and mm-hmm. put it in basic words. Oh, yeah. for There's me. a lot of really, really good journalism out about that, and of course the FBI report based on that. For sure. So it noted that there is no scientifically accepted statistics about the frequency of particular characteristics of hair distributed within the population. So you can't look at one hair and look at another and, you know, positively identify it to one person and having, you know, one in 10 million chance. It's just not a thing. It's not, no, it's not real. It doesn't make um, any sense. You can't match up two pieces of hair. So the theory is that an individual's hair has like distinguishable features, but that's, that's not true. Um, it's subjective. It's mostly guesswork. And uh, the same technique can be used by different analysis, but it can still produce different results. And that's a big, that's a big thing. And that's um, with a lot of these. So, um, Today, scientists use what's called short tandem repeat STR DNA testing, um, which you can use as long as the hair sample contains a root, which is right. v- very possible when it comes to violent right. crimes and stuff like hair that. Hair follicles do not contain DNA. Right. Um, a hair without a root, however, requires mitochondrial DNA testing. So um, it, it's, it's reliable, but it's still limited because all of the siblings from the same mother have that same mitochondrial DNA, but it's still better than guesswork and comparing microscopic examples and, and stuff like that. So let's talk about Sante Tribble. He served 23 years in prison and then did an additional five years parole viol- for, uh, for parole 
uh, for a murder that he didn't do. So this happened July 26th, 1978. A 63-year-old white man named John McCormick, McCormick was robbed, and he was shot with a 32 caliber handgun on the front porch of his home. His wife was home. She woke up. She heard her husband pleading for his life, and she calls 911, but it was too late. Um, so a canine officer and his dog found a stocking mask that uh, the wife said the assailant was, was wearing at the scene of the crime. Um, so earlier that month, uh, another elderly white man named William Horn had been shot and killed in an armed robbery. There was a similar MO and, um, the police actually think that the same person did both. So Sante Tribble, he was a kid. He was only 17 at the time. He, um was linked to the crime by an informant named Bobby Jean Phillips. And so she had some inconsistencies in, in her statement. Um, her testimony linked him and his friend Cleveland Wright to a gun similar to the one allegedly used in the crimes, but the actual gun itself was never recovered. So this is already not off to a, a great start. So the second informant, Ronald Willis, said that uh, Tribble admitted to involvement in the Horn murder, but that's also um, uh, not true. He was Tribble ended up being tried for both murders, and he was acquitted of the Horn murder due to lack of evidence. Um, so he goes to trial for the first victim, John McCormick. He even presents um, evidence of like a solid alibi that he was at his mom's home in in Maryland. Uh, witnesses come up and testify to this alibi they confirm it and everything but it doesn't it really doesn't do anything for him because an fbi now um analyst comes in and testifies that one of the hairs on the stocking mask um links triple to the crime and he said it quote matched in all microscopic characteristics which it it's not a thing right and i think if i were a juror I would be immediately skeptical of because I don't do, do any two pieces of anything match in all microscopic characteristics. Ash. Like, what does that even mean? It's yeah. like just not a meaningful statement, but, but when it's an FBI investigator who's saying it, it's damning. Yeah. And that's the thing about this, that forensic evidence, forensic science, it's always so damning when it comes to, uh, the, the jury. Because he, there's not that ability, like you were saying at the outset, to discern what is good science and what, and what isn't, isn't good science. Right, we just right. don't have that capacity in our society, really. Right. And he makes up this, this statistic. He says one chance in 10 million that the hair could have belonged to anyone other than Trevor, which is totally exaggerated and invented. Or who knows? I mean, it's I not based on anything, so... Um, so in 1980, he was convicted of the McCormick murder by um, a jury, and he was sentenced to 20 years to life. Uh, he wasn't released on parole until 2003. And then, so, um, I got a lot of my information from the Innocence Project. I used mm -hmm. the innocenceproject.org, and then I used um, the California Innocence Project website. It had a lot of great um, information on their cases, but also why uh, forensics is a problem and mm -hmm. the details on hair analysis and all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, they got in, they got involved um, and his attorneys ended up uh, getting mitochondrial DNA testing and there was, it totally excluded him. Mm -hmm. uh, nothing implicated him uh, at all. 
And in the end, the uh, the analysis, the second analysis revealed that the um, FBI person mistook a dog hair for human hair. So it wasn't even a human hair. Not the first time I've heard about that happening. It's just messed up. Yeah. Um. So he was exonerated. He was granted, in 2012, December of 2012, he was granted a certificate of innocence. And, Which is a thing. Yep. And the murders of John McCormick and William Horn are still unsolved. Next on my list is bite mark analysis. Now, I think bite mark analysis is probably the most ridiculous out of all of them. Um, There's just not a lot of research to back it up. There's no scientific validation. There's nothing that says that a person's teeth or bite mark is unique. Like in like in the same way that DNA is to like each individual um, there's a lot of problems with it. Sometimes a bite mark uh, can actually be some kind of other unrelated injury. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, it's not like a dental impression at, at the doctor's office. So right. Bite marks are found on skin. They're found on clothing. They're found on soft tissue. Skin, you know, it, it heals. It can deform the mark totally. It could be. It could be something. It couldn't even be a bite mark. It could be some other exactly. type of laceration, some type of bruise. And what another problem is that it's used. Um, it's often compared using just just photos, which allows for mistakes. So, like hair analysis, it's the human interpretation. It's the comparison. That's the problem. And what that allows for, unfortunately, is. We, we talked about in the Jean Monnet case, right? Where right. you've got an investigator, right? Whether it's the DA or a police officer or whomever, family member of the victim perhaps, who want a certain outcome. And the people who are doing the analysis know that they want that certain outcome. Right. And they're trying to match their idea to the evidence when it should be the opposite. Exactly. Because good science goes from evidence to conclusion. Bad science goes from conclusion to evidence. Now, that's not only for science. That's just life in general. Yeah. But especially when you're talking about science. So if... You, and matching it to criminal law. It's a bad yeah. combination. It's just a bad So, yeah, combo. if you ever hear someone start to talk in that way, whether you're going from conclusion to evidence, just know in your head they're probably wrong. Yeah. So and let's you can talk feel about superior. Gerard Richardson, another mm-hmm. man, served 18 years in prison for a murder he didn't commit. Now, this one's pretty brutal, and it's sad because it's still unsolved. Because And it's sad because a woman uh, named Monica Race, she was the victim. She had to go through this. Her family had to go through this. Gerard Richardson had to spend 18 years in prison for this. His, his family had to miss him for eight. It's terrible. It's all mm-hmm. terrible. So she leaves her home. Um, in Elizabeth, New Jersey, around 11 o'clock on the night of February 20th, 1994. So she tells her brother that she's leaving to go see a man who she believed had had money for her. So Monica was not in the best of situations. She was a heroin addict. She was breaking into cars at the time. She sold drugs. She posed as a sex worker. She, she robbed people. She was not in a great situation. Five days later, her body was found in um, a ditch 30 miles from her home. The lower portion of her body was covered in half an inch of snow. Lo- like huge rocks, 25, 200 pounds, were found on her head and her feet. She was wearing the same clothes that she was wearing when she left her house. And this was five days ago. Um, she had been beaten, she had been strangled, and she had been robbed. So the ME, the medical examiner, found evidence of possible sexual assault so a a kit was collected there was a prominent bite mark on the lower left side of her back and this is what got gerard uh, among, among other things a lot of these cases that i found have a lot of botched evidence but the bite mark was what really 
sent him in. Mm-hmm. The, uh, it was determined to be fresh, made within hours of the victim's death, and they swabbed it to recover uh, saliva. So the, the boyfriend, his name is Eli Torres, he told police that he believed that she was killed um, by some guy who um, they, they robbed him, and they, he was threatening them with a gun. So that's who uh, the boyfriend thinks killed her. Gerard Richardson became a suspect because um, on, there was a time, there were a few times where he uh, sold Monica Ray's uh, cocaine. She also owed him money for the drugs, and they also had a run, uh, some kind of run-in. She promised to pay him once she got her check on the first of the month. So there were a lot of suspects in this case, but Richardson's uh, dental impressions were the only ones that actually ended up being submitted for comparison on on the bite mark. Forensic dentist Dr. Ira Tatunik declared that the dental impressions were in fact in in, in fact in air quotes <laughs> a, a match in his opinion. In his <laughs> opinion. In his just, expert opinion. It's just bad. Right. So he and that's when Richardson was was charged with the murder. So he was convicted by a jury November 30th, 1995 and he was sentenced to 30 years without the possibility of parole so this whole time Richardson was somebody who maintained his innocence and even at his sentencing he said he does admit to supplying drugs to her but he says quote I didn't kill Monica Reyes and I'm never going to admit to it to something that I didn't do um five years later in 2000 he saw DNA testing for the swab um, from the bite mark but his petition was dismissed um a year later uh his lawyer uh put in for a petition and this time it was granted. So they, they sent it in for testing and it yielded inconclusive results. More testing was conducted a few years later and it turned up just her DNA profile. So this is when the Innocence Project becomes involved in Richardson's case. Uh, it do, they don't get involved until July of 2012 and they were like, let's do a complete DNA reinvestigation. Let's just start over. So in 2013, YSDR testing on the bite marks swab produced a complete profile that totally excluded Richardson. He was also excluded from the vaginal swab sticks um, and also fingernail clippings. So they redid this DNA test and it was exonerated him completely. So he was released um, in 2013 in October and he was uh, fully exonerated about a month later. But the murder of Monica Reyes is still unsolved. Now, I'm going to talk about probably the most frustrating of all, uh, it's, this one's not necessary, it is a little bit of science, but, um, let's talk about eyewitness testimony. Oh, yeah. It's incredibly frustrating. It's, uh, it, it, it's not reliable at all. And it's, it's frustrating because it's, it's like, it, there's somebody out there that saw something and saw mm. the truth and, and, and knows, but can't explain it to you and can't accurately recall because the human mind doesn't we're not video recorders that's not how it works right so when you're subject to high stress high anxiety your emotions are totally going to change what you're feeling and what you're thinking anxiety um me all the time you and mel brooks who there's a Mel Brooks movie called High Anxiety. I mean, I know who Mel Brooks is. Anxiety. Is that what he does? <laughs> he sings the song in the show. It's, There's a song? It's good. It's called High Anxiety. Well. The song is also called High Anxiety. Sounds like my anthem. You That's should what watch it. That's what it fucking sounds like. <laughs> oh. <sighs> okay. 
So I was going to, sorry, I was just going to say one other thing. It, I think one of the reasons why this one is so frustrating too is because yes. this was the way crimes were solved. For so For long. like the entirety of our common law, of history of common law. Exactly. Up until like, I don't know, now, yeah. maybe. It's still happening. Or, or like in the future perhaps. But what we've found out, and I know you're going to get into this. Is that it's just not reliable at all, right? And and right. It, it should be like it, it should be, but it, but it's just not. Yeah, it, it just it's like, like a cruel ugh. joke. <laughs> I know, and and like we all think if we were in that situation, like we would know, right? Like I know what color that guy's shirt was, but do they know, Chloe? No. Okay. So. Even if the event just happens, your emotions and your adrenaline can totally alter your memory. Like right. I said, we don't have the capability to record memories mm-hmm. like a video recorder. And I learned this, fun fact, witnesses often focuses, focus on weapons right. and not on the identity of the perp. Because, Makes sense. Because if you're in a fight or flight situation and your adrenaline's up through the ro- roof, you're going to focus on the thing that could potentially hurt you, right? Mm-hmm. You're not going to mm-hmm. be looking at who's wheeling it. Right. That's what you're going to end ended up being. You're going right. to end up remembering. Right. So um, in court, eyewitness identification of a perp is incredibly powerful to a jury. So, like, with the exception of DNA evidence, nothing can be more damning for a defendant than somebody sitting there and saying, I saw him do it, and right. pointing. Right. It's, it's just, it's too easy for, for like, the identification to, to be mistaken. And police whether they mean to or not, have a part in this as well. They can be suggestive when it comes to trying to find the person. And I read that, um, like, the lineups are, they're terrible. They're mm. awful. Um, you Sometimes uh, a police officer might inadvertently use subtle clues. So, like, pauses, hesitations, like, smiles, gestures, and any, really anything, which subconsciously taints, your your judgment. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about Bruce Dallas Goodman. He also served 18 years for a murder, rape, and kidnapping that he didn't do. This one's pretty brutal. So this happened in um, 1984 um, on the morning of November 30th. The body of 21-year-old Sherry Ann Fales Williams was found near a freeway um, off-ramp north of Beaver, Utah. So she was bound at the knees and wrists, she was nude below the waist except for socks. An autopsy showed that she suffered at least eight blows to the head. She also had what appeared to be defensive wounds on um, her hands, and she had been sodomized with a blunt instrument. So this is uh, a brutal crime. The police determined that she had met 34-year-old Bruce Goodman at the Arizona State Fair on October um, in October of 1984, and that they had moved um, to a hot to a hotel in Las Vegas, and and at the time Goodman was working at a route at a ranch um, near near the city. So um, eleven days before her death, she breaks up with Goodman and decides to reunite with her estranged husband. That same day, Goodman asks asks to borrow a truck from his employer, and he's he's saying that uh, he needed it to move his personal belongings, stuff like that. So uh, he was eventually arrested on a traffic violation um, in December, um, about a month after she was found in in Texas. So he voluntarily 
voluntarily was like, yeah, I'll go back to Utah if you guys want to question me. He totally agreed to it. He denied involvement in the murder. He said he um, locked the keys of the truck and left it in a truck stop parking lot the same day that he, he borrowed it. But a truck stop worker said that it wasn't there until he found it shortly after midnight on the same day that Williams's body was found. So Bruce Dallas Goodman was charged with the murder in December of 1984 and went on trial a couple, uh, a couple years later in 1986. So at the trial, they showed a cigarette butt that was found near the body and they had saliva on it from um, someone with blood type A and was a secretor. So... They also said that Sherry Williams had sex with somebody who was type A, was a type A secretor, 24 to 48 hours before her death. Goodman was a type A secretor, but so is one third of the population. Right. Very, very rough. Yeah. Yeah. So the jurors were told that the rope used to bind Sherry Williams was similar to the rope used on the ranch where Goodman worked. That, so this is also where more false eyewitness testimony comes in. So the eyewitnesses totally contradicted what Goodman had said. A gas station attendant said that he saw Goodman and Williams together um, in a truck eight days before she was killed um, in, in Nevada. So there were two alleged sightings of Goodman and Williams together within 24 hours of the discovery of her body. So a truck stop cashier testified to seeing them arguing at around midnight on the night of November 29th. A casino worker said that Williams and Goodman were in the Peppermill Casino in Mesquite, Nevada between 2 and 4 a.m. on November 30th. So Goodman, um, like like a couple of our other um, uh, Innocence Project cases, this person had an alibi and they came to court and they showed. Mm. He said that he was in Stockton, California at the time of the murder. He presented two witnesses who said they were with him. They all testified. Um, it didn't work. February mm. 15th, 1986, he was convicted um, by a judge who actually heard the case without a jury. And he was sentenced to five years to life in prison. Uh 16 years later, 2002, he requested help from the Rocky Mountain Innocence Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. So lawyers there were like, let's do DNA testing. And a, and a judge granted, um, granted an order and they allowed tests to be performed on the rape kit as well as the cigarette butt. And just like Gerard Richardson, um, they found a profile, but it totally excluded Goodman. Mm. Um, they also looked at the rope. Further analysis showed that the weave of the fiber was totally different than any type of rope that was ever found on the ranch that Goodman worked in. So 2004, a couple years later, he was, his conviction was vacated and the case was dismissed. Um, he was released from prison, but he passed away almost exactly 10 years later. Wow. Um, and the murder of Sherry Ann Fales Williams is still unsolved. Right, of course. And probably didn't help that they had the wrong person in prison for, for over a decade. Oh, my God. Not looking for the real perpetrator. That's so, the big thing. They think they've got it done and solved, but they don't. Right, exactly. And that's why I I think people can misinterpret um, these kind of efforts and these, like, really critical examinations of forensics as somehow being soft on crime or something. It's exactly the opposite. Yeah. If you want to find the real perpetrator the way in which you can guarantee you're not going to do that is by locking up the wrong person and right. closing the case and right. not investigating anymore. Then that's it. <laughs> right? 
It just makes me mad because, it's like, people so do not give enough credence to these types of things. And, like, again, not to get too political, but, like, we're in an environment right now where, if anything, we're going in the opposite direction. Yeah. You know, whereas with Eric Holder and Loretta Lynch at the helm of the uh, Justice Department, at least there was a, you know, at least that report from what was it, like 2009? Yes, 2009. Yeah. Well, the... Or the, the FBI report was a few years later, but... I think the FBI report was in 2012. But 2012, the right. National Academy of Sciences was in 2009. Right, but, I mean... Who thinks that if Jeff Sessions were the attorney general in 2012 that that report would have come out? Not me. <laughs> would never have been created. Oh, God. Um, so, you know, these things matter. And they matter because we want to get justice for people. Yeah. And not have more people have injustices done to them, right? But basically, uh, just be skeptical when it comes to these type of things. Mm -hmm. It's not just hair analysis or bite mark analysis. It's it's and DNA, it's, too. It's, it's DNA. And we talked about this with the JonBenet Ramsey case, the touch DNA. Right. How that's a problem. Right. Um, anything that you can compare, like um, even like tire, like tire marks and stuff like that. And I could have yeah, I also could have gone bullshit. into like arson investigations, fire pattern. That's not a thing. Blood, Blood spatter splatter. analysis. Yep. That's not a thing. <laughs> it's terrible. Just, <sighs> Goodness. Okay, so thanks so much for listening, thank you guys. Thank you guys for listening. Thank, and thank you for waiting on this episode. We really appreciate it. Super appreciate we, it. We will um, be better at doing it earlier. So even if something like this happens, we can get it out. We, we, we're, we're committed to Wednesday. We've been committed to Wednesday for a year, pretty much. So we're, we're sticking with Wednesday, but... This like you week said, nobody, nobody Nobody's bats a hundred. Nobody bats a hundred. So um, I did, and I, I don't have very much time, but I, I just really quickly wanted to do, because this was such a good story. Um, and I sent it yes. to you today, and it made me so happy. Um, and if you guys haven't seen it, please look it up. Um, Washington Post story by Michael Bryce Sadler. Um, the headline is uh, Patton Oswalt got into a Twitter war with a Trump supporter then helped pay his medical bills. What a guy. Oh, my God. Um, and, and and please, if you can help this guy out, do. Because this guy needs some serious help. Um, name was Michael Beatty, or Beatty. I'm, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. 64-year-old Huntsville, Alabama resident. Very unfortunate circumstance. Basically he, he, did not take care of his diabetes. Right. Went he into a coma. Badly managed diabetes. Dealt, he was dealing with sepsis and yeah. um, diabetic ketoacidosis. Terrible, terrible conditions. Um, had just gotten home from the hospital. Was super upset because all these people were saying bad stuff about the, the administration that he admires. Um, including Patton Oswalt, who's, you know, very, very outspokenly liberal on Twitter. And so he fires off this message to Patton Oswalt, never thinking that anyone would see it, let alone Patton Oswalt. Patton Oswalt does see it. And he doesn't fire back with another fiery tweet. He looks into the guy's situation, sees that he's in this terrible situation, and directs all of his Twitter followers to go donate money so that his medical expenses can be... It's just so great. It's because Patton Oswalt is a good person. And that's the thing that I really love from this. And what I also admired about okay, this, Michael. Can I just say the, the Yes, yeah, go Thank ahead. you. I, I just really love this quote, so I, I just wanted to make sure to say it. Um, this is the, the Michael Beattie guy. Um, he says, um, okay, where is it? Okay, quote, I'm having to reevaluate some of the things I've 
gone along with, he said. The biggest thing I learned about Oswald is that he is a man of character. Right. I just right. loved that. What, what were you going to say? Basically that, that he was like re-looking and trying to uh, figure out his mindset and right. stop judging people. And like I think that's – yeah, that's so that's awesome. Important. So yeah, like find find this guy's GoFundMe page, um, Michael B D B E A T T Y. You know, give give him a couple of bucks if you can because he needs it. Uh, I guess he said his cousin's having a hard time too. So people helping people, I just love it. You know, that's what it's all about. Yep. So yeah, thanks again for listening, guys, and uh, we will. Be back at the regular uh, time and slot uh, next week. Yeah, hit so. us up on Wednesdays. Woo! And hit up our Insta. Yeah, follow uh, us on Twitter. And and if you if you noticed, I don't know if you if you follow our Twitter and our Facebook, we were talking about the delay. So if you're wondering, hey, where's the pod? Hey, what what are they going to do next week? Uh, what what are Mario and Chloe up to? Get us on the social medias. You know, look look us up because we we are posting uh, actively. So. And thanks you, Chloe, because Chloe's our social media manager. She does the, the yeoman's work on that. Okay. <laughs> right. Okay. Bye. Bye.